All right, good morning. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, if you're watching online, love for you to turn to Ruth chapter three this morning. Before we look at Ruth three, let me take a moment, introduce myself, or maybe reintroduce myself to some of you. Uh, my name is Greg Gibson, and I am uh, the pastor for strategic leadership here at Foothills, which basically means I get to oversee multi-site strategy and church planting and leadership development and things like that. And from 2010 to 2016, my family and I were here, and I was on staff here at Foothills Church. And then in August of 2016, we moved to Washington, D.C. to plant a church called Veritas City Church, and we launched Veritas September uh, 2017, and I was there as the lead pastor for three years, and it was an amazing, amazing experience, amazing time. We saw many people come to faith. We were able to see many people baptized. We moved Veritas into a new building uh, really at the heart of the, the Georgetown waterfront. We, we planted the church right next to Georgetown University. Uh, over that three-year time, we were, the Lord was kind. We were able to establish a deacon ministry. And, and this past February, we installed our first uh, group of, of elders. And uh, we have a picture of, of, of that Sunday uh, where we installed these guys and and then it was really kind of a just so happened moment because uh, it was God's perfect timing. COVID hit pretty much the next week. And uh, Pastor Trent and I began to talk about moving our family back to Foothills Church and back to Tennessee, back to the, the promised land, <laughs> as it were, amen. And so it really became a beautiful runway to just pass the baton to this group of elders to lead the church into the future. And it was an amazing four years, but man, we are glad to be home. We are glad to be back home here. We are glad to be back at Foothills Church. And now we get to do what we've been doing for the last half decade, really, but we get to do it here with you and in Knoxville. And, and uh, we are excited about moving forward with launching the new location of Foothills Church in the Bearden community. Anybody in the room excited about that? Yeah, we got, a, we got a couple. We are thrilled and excited about what God is, is doing here at Foothills Church. And in fact, we're already kicking up dust in the Bearden community. So as you heard me mention just a moment ago, next Sunday, we are starting an eight-week Bible study in Bearden. So if you're in the room and you're driving from Knoxville or, or you're watching online and, and you live in Knoxville, I would love for you to be a part of this eight-week Bible study. And so we're gonna be, um, it'll be a strategic time just to, to talk about vision for, for what this is gonna look like, fellowship, uh, Bible study together, we'll have refreshments and snacks and childcare will be provided. So if you're interested, go to foothillschurch.com slash Bearden. Uh, please register so that we can make arrangements for that. Can't wait to see what God has in store for us as we're faithful to start a church in Bearden. All right, Ruth chapter three. You guys ready to get in it? Let's do it. Let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? I think so often 
we have this picture in our minds of the person that we aspire to be. And obviously our goal as Christians is to be, to, to be like who, right? We want to be like Jesus and grow in our faith and our relationship with Jesus. But so often we have this picture in our minds of the person we wish we were more like. And if we're honest, it's almost always a person that comes to mind. Maybe it's someone that we admire or someone that has influenced us over the years or someone in our occupation or maybe someone in our family. But there is that someone in all of our lives that takes up residence in our minds. And I think the better question to ask is this, who do you want to become? Who are you on a journey to become? Because when we ask the question this way, who do we want to become, then we can begin to create a process for growth. When we are only looking into the future of who we want to be one day, there's such a chasm between that day and today. But when we ask the question this way, who do we want to become, then we can begin to put the steps in place to get there. In chapter two, we learn that Boaz, if you remember, he's a what? A worthy man. Men in the room, Boaz doesn't just wake up one day and become that man, right? It takes discipline, it took a plan, it took the right people around him. I'm sure it took failure from time to time. I'm sure it took lots of tears and I'm sorry's. And I'm sure it took doing the right things over the right time that led to the desired results in Boaz's life. But, but there was a point in his life when things begin to change for him. He doesn't just come out of the womb a worthy man. He begins at some point to be described that way. And that's what we're all after, isn't it? That is what we are all after. And here is what I know to be true about all of us. Nobody is, help me out, what's that word? There yet. Nobody is there yet. I don't care how successful you are or how good you think your marriage is or how successful your children or your grandchildren are or the amount of commas in your net worth, no one is there yet. We are still on a journey of becoming who God is creating us to be. And here is what I love about the little love story of Ruth, is that the author of Ruth speaks more to the character of the characters, doesn't he? He speaks more to who they are becoming what is happening in their hearts and less about what they have accomplished to get to where they are going. They are becoming someone. Because that's what we're really after, isn't it? Growth and becoming more like Jesus. And since that's what we're after, I wanna ask you the question just one more time. Who are you becoming? Because none of us are there Yet. So if you missed chapter one and chapter two, 
I wanna give you a quick recap, or maybe this is your first time here this morning. I wanna give you a quick recap to, to give us a running start, kind of cannonball splash into chapter three. In the days when the judges ruled is how the story of Ruth begins. Really dark time for Israel. In fact, if you flip back just one page in your Bible, you will see the last verse in the last chapter of the book of Judges, which says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's the setting for the story that we're in. A really dark time. We are then told that there's a famine in the land. And this famine is probably judgment from God on Israel because they have turned from God and turned from the law and you guessed it, right? They began to do what was right in their own eyes. This is a little bit of classic Hebrew irony for us this morning, which is why we're all here today, isn't it? You wanted to hear a good, strong Hebrew, funny, funny, ha ha. There is famine where? There's famine in Bethlehem, which means literally house of bread. So the story begins with famine where? In the house of bread. Then we're introduced to the characters of the story. This is where it starts to get good, I love it. We have a guy named Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. But he doesn't live like his God is king. He moves his family away from the place of God, the people of God, the blessing of God. Limelech's married to a gal named Naomi. They have two sons. If you guys remember, Machlon, Kilion, two wonderful Klingon names. Elimelech <laughs> moves his family away from the place of God, the people of God, the blessing of God to a place called, you remember? Moab. Moab's a weird place. If you know about the Moabites, you know in Genesis chapter 19, there's a man named Lot. He has an inappropriate thing happen with his own daughter. She has a son named Moab, hence the Moabites. They're not a good people. They worship the demon god Chemosh. They're an incestuous tribe. And Elimelech wakes up one day in the middle of a famine in the house of bread, really known as Bethlehem, and is like, huh, let's go there. There seems to be a lot of opportunity in this place. But the story gets weirder because Machlon, Kilion, they take Moabite wives, then everyone dies. Elimelech dies, Machlon, Kilion die. Naomi's left a widow with who? She's left with her two daughters-in-law, one Orpah, the other Ruth, in a strange land away from the people of God, the place of God, the blessing of God. And chapter one ends with Orpah going back to her people, her gods, her place, and Ruth clinging to Naomi, and they go back to Bethlehem. Then last week, we learned that Ruth, I love this, she meets a strong man with an even stronger name. His name is? All right, Boaz. We're getting there. Say it with me. Ready? One, two, three. All right, one, one more time. One, two, three. Okay, good strong man, good strong name. His name is Boaz. Worthy man, the Bible says, from the tribe of Elimelech. Naomi tells Ruth, if you're still with me, to go glean in the field of the man with the good strong name and to glean there. 
We're getting there. Pastor Trent talked about this last week. This is how God cared for the poor. The rich would leave the margins of their field for those who were in need, literally leaving the margins for the marginalized. So Ruth, she goes, she gleans in the field, the strong man with a strong name named Boaz. Boaz sees her, notices her, becomes attracted to her. They go on their first date together. Do y'all remember the weird bread and wine scene that happened in chapter two? Boaz sends her back to Naomi with a ton of barley. That seems to be a theme that happens throughout. He's a generous man. Things are beginning to look better for Naomi and Ruth. And then we learn that Boaz is one of their redeemers. We'll get to that a little bit more in just a moment. But now we get to chapter three. All right, how was that for running cannonball start? Good job, thank you, thank you. All right, let's read chapter three together. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. That sounds like pretty iffy advice, doesn't it? And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So he, she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley, and he put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when, he came, or when she came home to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but will settle 
the matter today. So here are four talking points for us when it comes to chapter three this morning. Devotion, risk, worthy woman, and safe man. And we're gonna begin with devotion. In verses one through five, we see the character of Ruth shining bright and on full display here again. Her mother-in-law gives her some pretty iffy advice. She's like, hey, Ruth, you know the strong man with a strong name in whose field you've been gleaning? Well, tonight he is going to be on the threshing floor. The threshing floor was basically the flat ground of area where they would winnow the barley and harvest the grain. It was hard work. And so again, Naomi's like, Ruth, Boaz will be working tonight winnowing barley on the threshing floor. And here's the, here's the iffy advice. Wash yourself. In other words, take a bath. You smell like a middle school boy. Anoint yourself. In other words, put on some makeup. Make yourself look good. Uh, then she says, put on your cloak. In other words, put on the best, clean, smelling, looking good clothes you have. And go down and make yourself known to the man after he finishes eating and drinking. Uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. What? In other words, she's saying, go make me a grandchild. And look at Ruth's devotion to her mother-in-law here in verse five. What does she say? love Ruth. All that you say, I will do. All that you say, I will do. The character of Ruth on full display here. Devotion to her mother-in-law at all costs. Ruth, if you see this in the story, is about to risk everything here for this act on this threshing floor. But it doesn't seem outside of Ruth's original act of devotion to Naomi, does it? Do you remember Ruth chapter one? When Orpah goes back to her people, her gods, but what does Ruth do? We have this amazing statement from Ruth in chapter one, where she says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then the following is everything that we use for our vows and our wedding for some weird reason. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, uh, if anything but death parts me from you. And then we all said, I do, right? But here's our principle. Our principle here is this. Our principle here is to do what we said we were going to do, the way we said we were going to do it, in the time we said we would do it. And if that's too confusing, just remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 37. <laughs> Let what you say be simply what? Yes or no. Let what you say simply be yes or no. How often do we get into trouble because we can't live by this? Letting our yes be yes and our no be no. If you commit to do something, probably, we should do it. Leave the excuses on the floor. And here's the other thing. Also let your no be no. 
Maybe this is for some of you this morning, but if you show me your calendar, then I'll show you your ability to manage yourself. We should never, ever find ourselves in a place where we are too busy for good things, where we are too busy for good priorities, where we are too busy for God's good things in your life. Give yourself margin in your life to say no to the wrong things so that we can say yes to the right things. And here Ruth says not only yes to the right thing, she says yes to the hard thing, doesn't she? She says yes to the difficult thing. And Naomi's asking her to go and meet Boaz on the threshing floor. And here Ruth says yes, not only to that, but to the scary thing that she is about to do. And the second point is risk. But wait a minute, wait a minute. This doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? This doesn't sound like it's going to go well for Ruth. Naomi's giving her this advice. Ruth, go and put yourself out there to Boaz. Ruth, go and do something potentially very dangerous. Ruth, go and do something that is going to harm potentially your reputation. As one commentator puts it, he says, the logic here was that if Ruth became pregnant with Boaz's baby, he would then be forced to take them both in. Ruth was willing to what? Risk everything for her devotion to Naomi. So what happens here? The twist in the story I think is, is pretty surprising and, and maybe you've already noticed the twist, but Ruth goes and does exactly what Naomi tells her to do. She goes down to the threshing floor, she uncovers his feet and she lays there and, and, and Boaz wakes up. But Ruth divert, uh, diverts from the playbook. She calls an audible and I want you to see the difference in what unfolds of what Naomi tells her to do and what Ruth actually does. Instead of waiting for Boaz, I want you to see this here, instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, Ruth tells Boaz what he is going to do. The tables turn. And here's what is happening. The good, strong man with a good, strong name is now being instructed by someone who is becoming a good, strong woman with a good, strong name. Remember last week we learned about this concept of kinsman redeemer. Look what Ruth then says in verse nine. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are what? A Redeemer. This concept of kinsman redeemer is a concept that means Boaz potentially was her closest relative that was living, meaning that he would care for her and Naomi and provide for them in the loss of their father-in-law and husband. And Boaz sees her risk here at face value, doesn't he? 
He realizes how much she is willing to risk, not only to be there, but also to say these things to him. Because let's be reminded, women don't speak to men like that in the ancient Near East, especially homeless girls speaking to potentially their master or their boss. We have to ask the question, why did Ruth step into this space, put on a little bit of courage and do this? And I think we see the answer in Boaz's answer back to her. Look at what he says. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last, what's that word? Say it one more time. Kindness. Kindness. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after the young men, whether poor or rich. Look at this word kindness with me just for a moment. It's the Hebrew word hesed. We mentioned this last week. Above all else, the entire story of Ruth is a story of hesed. The entire story of the Bible is a story of hesed. And see Boaz's response here? Are you, are you following me? This is amazing. It is a response of blessing to her because of that, because of her kindness, because of her hesed. And as another commentator puts it, this is a little bit longer, but stay with me. This Hebrew concept, which is frequently translated in the book of Ruth with terms such as kindness or kindly, is rich indeed. It goes far beyond our notions of kindness. Even a stranger may show kindness, but a stranger does not sh- show hesed. That is because hesed is a covenantal concept and covenants are not made between strangers. Hesed is enduring covenant loyalty and love. It refers to an unwavering commitment and often is used of God's permanent, unchanging love for Israel his steadfast love for Israel. Hope you see what's happening here. Boaz is calling Ruth's act an act of hesed. That is powerful stuff, is it not? It's powerful stuff. He is referring to Ruth's act as an act of covenantal love or covenantal kindness, which is why we know that she's not just propositioning Boaz to marry her. She's saying, hey, Boaz, you are going to marry me. Marriage, as we know, is also an act of covenantal love, which brings us to our third point this morning, which is worthy woman. This looks a lot like the description of Boaz in Ruth chapter two, doesn't it? The author of Ruth calls Boaz a a worthy man from the tribe of Elimelech. And now look at verse 11. And what Boaz says to Ruth about, remember, not what she accomplished, but about her character. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Let's talk for a minute about what it means to be a worthy woman. Let me start by saying that women are used all over the Bible to do some pretty incredible things. Deborah, if you remember, was a prophet, a warrior, the fourth judge of Israel. Do you all remember who Sarah was? 
the mother of an entire nation. Rahab was a prostitute, but she was redeemed by God as a vital agent in Israel's conquest over Jericho. And she's ultimately, if you jump to Matthew 1, in the bloodline of who? Of Jesus and Ruth. Man, not to, not to ruin the end of the story, but Ruth becomes the mother of Obed, the grandmother of Jesse, and the great-grandmother of a guy we all know named King David. All that to say there are some pretty kick-butt women in the Bible. And I could give you characteristics of Ruth and these other women all day of who they were, but here's a definition I found this week that I just could not walk away from, and it's concerning the faithful kindness of Ruth in this passage, which we just read. This commentator says, Ruth subverts societal conventions. Remember that? We just mentioned that a moment ago. Don't, don't talk that way to Boaz. She, convert, she subverts societal conventions governing female propriety by going to the threshing floor and once there, taking the lead and telling a man what he should do. Don't miss that. Ruth does not accept her situation as, given, as a given. Instead, she tries to shape her circumstances for the good of those around her. Even though her actions present dangers to her safety and reputation and undercut social expectations. Through all of this, the author of Ruth presents her and her actions at the threshing floor as an example of what Hesed entails, putting oneself at risk for a greater good. And if we take what we've read so far in chapter three and what we're learning about this concept of Hesed, maybe, just maybe, we can come up with a definition for worthy woman that is something like this. Putting oneself at risk for a greater good. Putting oneself at risk for a greater good. Women in the room, Ruth is not just a story of a good, strong man with a good, strong name who saves and rescues a helpless girl who can't rescue or save herself. Absolutely not. It is about a powerful and providential God who rescues both Naomi and Ruth, not because of what they've accomplished, but because of their faith in the hesed of God, the covenantal love of God through the agent and work, yes, of this strong man with a strong name. But it wasn't just Boaz, it was also the strong character and conviction of Ruth that led her to the place of redemption that she is now in. Women in the room, men in the room, Ruth is our great example, is she not, of what it means to be a worthy woman. This is important for how we understand leadership. Ruth takes the lead here. There are times when men take the lead and there are times when women take the lead and God uses both the great leadership of men and the great leadership of women to do amazing things. And the leadership of Ruth here is called, did you catch it? Great kindness, great hesed from Boaz. 
Which brings us to our final talking point for chapter three. Safe man. Let's circle all the way back to Boaz for just a moment. Boaz is a great example for us men for what it means to not only to be a strong man with a strong name, but also to be a safe man with a strong name. In other words, I hope you see what happened here. Boaz was, was Ruth's protector that evening on the threshing floor. No one was around, it was just the two of them. He was full of bread and wine, probably tired from a long day's work. Boaz easily could have slipped into a bad decision that could have cost both Ruth, who she was becoming, and Boaz, who he was becoming. But instead of one bad decision ruining their reputation, he became, or he becomes, our great example of what a safe man does. Let's look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz is not only the man, but he is a safe man. He hasn't put a hand on her in any way. He makes sure that her reputation stays intact. He allows her to stay there for the evening so no one else potentially has the opportunity to harm her. And then he gets up the next morning, gives her more bar barley because the dude just can't help but give stuff away. And then Boaz goes and sits by the gate and waits for the other relative uh, that her and Naomi have to learn if he actually can, in fact, redeem her. Ruth goes back to her mother-in-law and chapter three ends just like that. Men in the room, are we safe men? Are we safe men? Do we protect the women in our life in a safe way, emotionally, physically, sexually? How would people describe us? Are we safe people to be around? It is important for us to aspire to be safe men who keep our worthy women very safe. So let me ask you this question again. Who are you becoming? Because none of us are there where God is taking us yet. One bad decision could take you down a path of destruction. Let me tell you one final story that you may have heard before, but I bet you've never heard it when mirrored to the faithfulness and kindness and character and conviction of Boaz and Ruth. A few generations later, there's a king over Israel named David. And as the story goes, it was the time of the year when kings go out to battle, kings go to war. It was springtime, the weather's warm. Kings get up from their kingdom to go and conquer more kingdoms. But David did not go this time. If you know the story, he stays back and he sends his best men out to war instead. And one afternoon, probably a a normal day in the life of David. He gets up from the couch, the Bible says, and he's walking on the roof of his house because kings walk on roofs 
uh, peasants like me and you, we walk on sidewalks, right? That's how big their houses are. He's walking on, his roo- on the roof of his house. He goes over to the ledge of his roof and he sees a young woman there bathing. And this young woman, the Bible says, is, is very beautiful, the story says. And it's probably not the first time David had lingered over to that side of the house and uh, stayed there. Finally, one day, after not just lingering, David makes a grave mistake and he sends his men to get that young lady to bring her to his room because he can do that. He's the king and she comes to his room. She stays the night with him. Eventually, she gets pregnant. And the story goes like this. King David then brings Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, off the battlefield. He just sent him out to fight wars and to conquer more land. And and he brings Uriah into his room and he has the audacity to ask him, hey, Uriah, how's the war going? And then he sends Uriah to Bathsheba. So he's doing such a great job. You can spend the night with your wife tonight. And he's trying to make it look like it's his baby. But Uriah declines and spends the night outside of the king's door and sleeps on the floor. And the next morning, David wakes up and he's like, why, Uriah, why did you not go to your wife? And Uriah responds in the most noble, warrior-like way that we know. He says, my men are, are dying on the battlefield. How can I go and, and eat, drink, and be merry with my wife? We love Uriah, don't we? Man, another good, strong man with a good, strong name right there. So David tries again, night two, to get him to go to Bathsheba. So he throws a party, he gets Uriah drunk, but Uriah falls asleep on his couch and David's like, okay, I've had enough here. And so he sends a letter to the leader of his army and says, put Uriah on the front lines of battle. And he does. And Uriah dies in battle. And if you know the story, Bathsheba becomes David's wife and they eventually have their baby. But the story ends with this sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Because of the decisions of David here, let me just tell you how his life unfolds after this. Not only does Uriah die, the child of Bathsheba also dies. And then David's prosperous rule over Israel is then impacted with event after event, after event of destruction and downfall and death. The prophet Nathan prophesies against David saying the the sword will never ever leave your house. One of David's sons has a sexual relationship with his own sister. Then Absalom, another son of David, kills his brother because of that terrible act. Then this same son, Absalom, declares war on his dad and goes to war against David. David flees from Jerusalem and runs from his son's army. David eventually wages war against his own son and his own son is eventually killed in battle. David experiences great depression later in life. We see this written out in in page and page and page in Psalm after Psalm after Psalm in the Psalms of Lament in the book of Psalms. And then David dies. Church, I hope you see the difference here between the decisions of Boaz and the decisions of King David. One way is a protector and it leads to life. The other is a predator and it leads to death. David's first mistake was not that he 
spied on Bathsheba bathing. His first mistake is that he didn't go to war with his men, right? He didn't get up and put on his big boy pants and go to war in the springtime when it was customs for kings to go to war. Remember this, church, as you are thinking about the person you are becoming. Sometimes it's as simple as doing what you know you are supposed to do that keeps you out of the trouble that could be the destruction in your life and keeps you on the path of flourishing of what God has created you to do. And if we could sum all of this up, Ruth 3, everything that we've talked about, maybe we could sum it up with this bottom line that the rewards of tomorrow are determined by your faithfulness today. The rewards of tomorrow are determined by the faithfulness of today. The decisions that you make today, how you live today, what you do today will impact the rest of your life. Men, one mistake, one mistake. I hope this sermon is forever me in your ear, like the Holy Spirit right here. One mistake could lead to a life of destruction and rebuilding, one mistake. Go and be safe men for the women in your life. Women, the same is true for you. Go and be kick butt women who, like Ruth, take risks for the good of those they love. And this is summed up in one of my favorite Proverbs, ironically written by the son of David, where he says, he who walks in integrity walks securely. He who walks in integrity walks securely. So I want you to see this too, because the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that even if you've made bad decisions before, or you've broken a covenant, or you didn't fall through with that commitment, or you made a grave mistake, or maybe you even lingered too long, or you broke that trust, or whatever it might be. Church, hear me on this. His grace covers and overflows into all of those mistakes, does it not? His grace is sufficient enough. We can never out-sin the grace of God that we have in Jesus Christ alone. The gospel of Jesus is a message of good news for wandering people like you and me. Boaz is a worthy man, but Jesus is the worst, the most worthy man of all time. He is the safest place any of us could ever run. He is the, the, the better king than David, and an even better, stronger, and safer Boaz. Jesus died for you and me when we were at our worst, on our worst day. What a savior, right church? What a savior. And if you would like to make a decision to follow this Jesus today, then we want to know about it. We would love to talk with you about that. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. 
The Bible says that all you need to do to invite him into your life and begin a relationship with him is put your trust and faith in him. Ask him to forgive your sin and you receive this salvation. And that salvation is not just for dying, but that salvation hope, that resurrected hope, that resurrected power we get is also for living, amen? And I don't know about you, but I need this message of hope every single day in my life. Every single day in my life. But whatever path, but whatever path you find yourself on today, right? Whatever path, the message of Jesus is for every single one of us. Because, remember this, because nobody is there yet. Let's keep becoming who God created us to be. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus alone. Thank you that in your mercy and in your power that you've allowed us not to stay in our sin, but you've sent your son, you've made a way for us to receive forgiveness, salvation, life, purpose, meaning, eternal salvation, all for you. And so this morning, Father, I pray that as you knock on the doors of the hearts in this room and those who are listening to this message, Father, I, I pray that you would do only what you can do, that you would create worthy men and worthy women who live for your glory in the good of our church, in the good of our city, in the good of their families. And when we fail to do so, because we do it every day, we remember the good grace that we have in your son Jesus alone. May you remind us of that power that we have to live lives like that. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. 